through my mom, you know, getting $20 tips, they were able to start a small business. And so from that small business, they decided that they were going to work seven days a week, 14 hours a day. Okay. And so from that, and nobody should have to do that, you know, to gain the American dream, but they, they did. They had to do that because it was the only way they were going to dig themselves out of the hole that they were in. And so they did that and they were able to gain back the wealth that they left behind. And they were able to give me a stable platform hmm. where I then I could grow and evolve and, and keep moving forward. Hmm. And so and so that American dream is possible if one generation decides not to live. Welcome to Activist MNT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today is part two of my two-part conversation with Ramona Masachi. Last week in part one, we discussed our new interview series with MNT candidates. As I write these words, we've already scheduled seven. Today in part two, we talk about the various concepts we've learned in the past year, all centering around the idea of taking care of those at the bottom. This is something that our of, by, and for the rich laws and media make extremely difficult. Taking care of the poor is not just a virtue and the right thing to do, it's necessary for saving our species. If you think of all humans as a single person, that person has a terribly infected foot. It's now spread up to his knee, and there's a dull but obvious red line connecting the two. We pretend that foot is not part of us. We're deceived into thinking it's not part of us or connected to us. Soon enough, however, that red line will work its way to the rest of our body and will become unstoppable. We are all in this together, whether we like it or not. The longer we keep neglecting those at the bottom, the sooner me and everyone listening to this show with their comfortable homes and cars and affordable health insurance will become those at the bottom. We will start dealing with these problems and control our destiny or we can enjoy our second-class amenities in blissful ignorance until the waterline reaches our staterooms. And yet, as Mr. Rogers says in a crisis, look for the helpers. We have no choice but to take a breath and learn the true causes of our problems and our own role in exacerbating them. Part of that is recognizing our own privilege. There is no other planet for us. There is no other government for us. There is no political savior. We are all we've got. As Ramona says, reality is what we think it can be. 
If something is physically possible, then we can do it. So let's envision what is possible and start doing it. Start discussing it. Because what else is there? And now, back to my conversation with Ramona Masachi. Enjoy. So as many interviews as they can get, let them get thousands of interviews. Like I hope everybody and their mother starts interviewing candidates. <laughs> um, it would be great for them because it'll give them a lot of exposure and they need it. They need the exposure because they're not going to get it. There's a reason why um, Booker wasn't able to win against McGrath. And it's because the, the the Democrats didn't want him to win, and he wasn't able to get the, the exposure and the momentum that he really needed because he had, you know, $80 million against him that was given to Amy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so if we can, you know, nobody's really, I feel like a lot of people aren't listening. Like, I just returned to my cable boxes. I feel like a lot of people don't even watch TV anymore, which is a really great thing because that's where a lot of the propaganda is coming from. Of course. And as long as, you know, we lose, keep losing TV voters, they'll, they're going to come, you know, to independent media. And sure, a lot of independent media is, you know, garbage. And a lot of it's great and asking really interesting questions and having great discussions. Mm-hmm. And, and if we, if as a society, we keep going in a way where we're not being flooded by propaganda, that, that, and the candidates get the exposure that they need will we'll create that shift. All right. Well, all we can do is what we can do. Correct. Um, I think Rep. John Yarmouth should run for president. <laughs> I really do. And I think he should have uh, Stephanie Kelton as his chief ec- economic advisor and bring in, you know, everybody, all of these, all of these, um, brilliant, uh, professors, um, bring them a policy writers, bring them all in with her mm-hmm. and just, you know, change it all up. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, he's, he's been in the centrist world for enough time that it would really be hard to point at him and call him a communist or like that. that I mean, he's the chair of he's the chair of something, right? The chair of the budget, something, right? Yeah, he's the chair of the Senate Budget Committee. Right. I actually saw him. I, I in my studying for interviewing Randy Ray a year ago, I watched his testimony on Congress. Ray's Dr. Ray's testimony on Congress. And Yarmouth was leading that hearing. And I don't remember, I just remember, I don't remember anything he specifically said, but I just remember, I was like, ugh, ugh, you know, the, what he was saying about, you know, questions about, like he was a reasonable person, but he, he was reasonable. He was not trying to deceive, I didn't think, but I felt that he was deceived and he was doing the best he could within that straitjacket. And so it was just like what he was saying was like, you know, he was saying scarcity myth kind of stuff. Um, and then, you know, now we're a year later and he's he's full on board with MMT. It's just like a really extraordinary turnaround. Yeah, he's the chairman of the House Budget Committee. Right. Um, 
and uh, and yeah, the, listen, the, I give Stephanie Kelton all that credit because it was her book that he read. It was her that he had a million conversations with and that brought him to this place where he was like, I get it. It clicks. And mm-hmm. I am so grateful mm-hmm. <laughs> for Stephanie Kelton. I am like extremely grateful because... I don't know anybody else that would be able to pull it off like she is. I, I, I mean, I can only imagine that he got the example from, from Stephanie Calton of he, in the, in his first uh, interview where he spoke MMT, he says the example of, you know, we could, we could easily give everybody in the country a $200,000 check and say, you can now buy a home. But that, but that would cause a crisis because we don't have the land and the materials and the workers to do that. So, so that really, that's a particularly good example to show the difference between the capacity to do something and, and the reality of whether it should be done or not. That's like right. a really And that's good why I think it's so important that knowing MMT is not like, you know, everybody automatically gets a free pony to me. Um, Understanding MMT is, okay, how do we build the stables, right? And grow enough food so that everybody can have a pony. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Ramona, do you know my, do you, When I was, when I introduced, I mean, you, you know, I, I introduced MMT to Graham Elwood. Do you know that? Yes, I do. I, in the, in that talk with Graham, I have the pony, the 2018 Pony for All Act. And I walk through the steps of what it would take to genuinely give everybody in the country a pony. Like, like how, what, what are the, the real resource questions of how do we feed them? How do we distribute them around the country? How do we like the practical, you know, obviously very simplistic, but still it really brings home how we could genuinely do that. That was a huge example for like a year in, in when I was talking to people of the pony, the 2018 pony for all act. (laughs) I love it. Because the the goal, the goal isn't the pony. The goal is all the structures that are able to support the pony and building those structures. And I I think people, you know, train people, train people to understand how to do it and to create space in their home, like an apartment building. Okay, so how do they have a pony? You're not going to bring it up the elevator. So what does that mean? What does that imply? We so we have to have some. you know, uh, like, you know, they have community gardens. I guess we have to have a community pony stable. You know, I mean, these are the practical questions that if we were serious that you have to answer and it brings up, okay, so now we have pony stables. So now we have to, so a lot of pony poop. So now what, you know, so we have to hire, how do we, how do we deal with that? And how do we deal with with pony waste? (laughs) Honestly, how do you deal with a pony dying? What do you do? I mean, a, a 360 million ponies for every single person, that's now a serious issue. That's a real issue. So now that brings up jobs of, of veterinarians and trainers and, and farmers and, you know, and, and transport and training. And I mean, it really, it creates jobs. It creates yeah. all these unique jobs, but it brings up all these questions of obviously we can't do this for, you know, a, a huge apartment building for everybody in an apartment building. That makes no sense. 
that makes you can't physically do that. And it just brings all of these issues. I think it brings all of these issues home of, you know, real resource, you know, so, so it's, it's funny that you brought that up because that was a huge part of, of, uh, I even did that at the, con- at the 2018 conference. That was a huge part of the, my thing of the 2018 conference. So there's no, so this is the thing. There is no, um, uh, special interest motive, you know, unless like some, uh, some are, you know, magically created, which will probably happen because where there is money, there is interest. But there is no like special interest group in everybody having a pony, right? <laughs> so, so, so nobody is actually. It's not like um, the. It's not like Retheon is. You know, is no here one's going to profit and, off of everybody. Nobody's a pony. profiting out, profiting off of it. So it's not like Retheon is sitting there and putting out. Okay, this. These are the steps to. Ponython. To create this this weapon or this war or this mm-hmm. you know this um, this you know tricking the entire country into thinking there's weapons of mass destruction, um, and so and so you know that so Congress has to actually do the work. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm trying to get at. They actually have to hire the people that understand the work to do the work, mm-hmm. right? Because they themselves. You know, honestly, Congress isn't smart enough to do this work. So <laughs> they're just not, you know, they're just regular people. Um, so so the, 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 they're not scholars. So, so you would have to hire the people to actually break this down and figure out, okay, so what logis- logistically is involved in having a pony and what does that look like and what do we need to build before we even ship out the ponies, you know, and, 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 and how do we build it and who do we train and what does that look like? And, and how many years does it take to train enough people? And to, how many to- years does it take to, to breed all of these ponies? Right. I mean, we're talking what, 10, 20 years. We're going right. to have to, we're going to have the whole, we're going to import ponies if, if we really wanted to do it. I mean, it really brings up interesting issues. If you take it seriously, it brings up really interesting issues. Right. And so so bringing it to like a policy like Medicare for all, right? How many years does it take to make sure that every person in America, right? Every single person in America that's living on this land is able to have quality health care. And that also includes like exercise and nutrition and, you know, and everything that involves, you know, having a healthy society. And how long does it take to get to that point where everyone is able to be, to be taken care of and and covered through the system? Mm -hmm. And so you, you, you have to think long term. And they're so used to thinking of, you know, short term and throwing money at the stuff and band-aiding that, that like this infrastructure bill is like the first time they're actually thinking long term that I've seen. And, and part of the infrastructure bill is basically giving money to the same people who own our grid, and having them transition and and go to green energy, and it's like, wait, why do the same people that have been destroying 
our earth also get to benefit yeah, here, from... Here, criminals, please bring us justice from right. your crimes. I don't understand. Why would they do that? Why wouldn't they look at it and say, okay, who are the entities that are building, you know, uh, solar panels and windmills and doing other research, you know, that we don't even have in place for energy or, or or dams or whatever it is that they're, you know, who are these people? Okay, let's pay them mm-hmm. <laughs> so that they can create the structure that they need to be able to redevelop our society. The, the hammer is currently in the hands of someone who does nothing but hit us over the head with that hammer. So the answer is not to outlaw hammers. The point of the rejecting the concept of hammers is not very helpful. The only thing that is possible is to take that hammer and to put it in the hands of someone more competent and caring and to start building things. That's the only possible solution. And yeah, so we're really going the wrong way about this. <laughs> this infrastructure bill. <laughs> oh, I'm not following. I'm not following that i mean I, I i basically know they're just basically trying to whittle down stuff and with the excuse of paying for it and the debt ceiling and whatever but i'm not following it so I'm not, so I'm anything not. that doesn't get, isn't like a corporate handout handout to these entities anything that actually directly helps the people they're trying to get rid of Mansion which is, is exactly what i'm rid of. right which is exactly what i'm saying the hammer is currently in the hands of someone who wants to do nothing but hit us over the head with it and government is currently the government is currently populated with elected officials who want to do nothing but use the government to lavish themselves and deprive the rest of us. And the point is not, you know, libertarian. Oh, the government has been proven to be horrible and they're irredeemable and you know the evidence of the past whatever years proves. No. The elected officials we currently have are awful. And they need to go away. They need to be rejected. They need to be replaced. The concept of the institution of government, there's nothing wrong with that. There is nothing to, so you, you, if you give up on the institution of government, that is awful. That's a horrible thing to do because that's all we have. That's all, that's the only tool that the poor have. And secondarily, uh, unions, which is kind of an extension of government. So we we have no choice but to get more competent people who care into government so that they stop doing these things. So that they stop using the hammer to hit us on the head and they start using it to build things. And so they stop using it to enrich whatever through this infrastructure or whatever and get rid of the parts that don't enrich those it's the only solution. I agree. And so I really want to replace Congress with, you know, new people that aren't like that. Because a lot of them are retiring or about to retire. They're so fucking old. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, and I just don't want the general public to be tricked into thinking that, we need to replace them with people just like them. Of course. And I, uh, actually, at the end of the part two with Fadl, which is being released a week from today, he, we talk about the 2011 Tunisian revolution. 
there was a revolution in Tunisia and hardly anything changed. And I think it's significantly because they're ignorant about how things work. And so they demanded a solution that barely changed anything, the fundament, the foundation of what really needed to be changed. So, right. yeah, yeah. And uh, one final point about the, the hammer analogy is um, if we give up on the government, by giving up on the government, like libertarian, get, you know, just get rid of the government because it's been proven to be, you know, horrible. If we give up on the government, it's really giving up on ourselves. Amen. It, we, we, we are the government. The government is an extension of us. There's no separating the government from us. It has been taken over by people who have, you know, locked the people out, but that doesn't change the fact that the institution of government is us and we have allowed it to decay like this. We have allowed it to get this way. So instead of making it better, we give up on it. You know, you said something on Twitter like, uh, you know, helping the poor is the right thing to do. And, and I said, agreeing with you and just building on that, saying that helping the poor is necessary if we're going to survive as a species. Because if we don't help the poor, then we're going to soon become part of that poor. People right. in McMansions are going to be part of that same group of that. Absolutely. They're going to be just as desperate as those on the bottom right now. They are going to be the bottom the the you know the the ship is filling and the waterline which is the bottom is you know starting to breach the second class and you know that that's the McMansion people and so they're they're being deceived by the scarcity myth and the taxpayer myth and and they have a level of comfort so they look everybody every every level looks down for what they fear like, you know, uh, impoverished communities nearby, they, they fear that. They fear becoming that. They fear losing their security, losing their home, losing their car, their good insurance. And then they also have looking up of what they want to be. Uh, so, you know, so millionaires are not happy because they're not 10 millionaires. And millionaires are fear becoming 100,000 heirs, right? So right. everyone looks down and has something they fear and everyone looks up and has something that they, they want to be. And... I lost track of what my point was, but it was a good one. So anyway. Um, but uh, uh, coming back to that, um, I think what a lot of people need to start understanding, which I, I don't think it's been talked about enough, is that when you help the the least fortunate among us, right, whether the, that's you know, Native Americans or immigrants or um, uh, ancestors of slavery, when you help the least among us, the entire society rises with them because then they are able to participate in society on a whole new level that they mm -hmm. didn't have the opportunity to. Mm -hmm. And who are they going to be... Uh, either, you know, working for or supplying for is everybody else in that society. Sure. And so it, it just, it grows upon itself. And I, I think people miss the point that 
for a society to work, the, the, the most, the people that are most harmed need to be elevated first. And that's when you have stability. Hmm. Yeah, floor. A floor yeah. that no one can fall below, which is the job guarantee, of course. And, and uh, you know, we are in this together whether we like it or not. And I see this as, you know, the poor are, is like, you know, we as, as, as a species are a single person. Just think of it as a single person. And our foot is gangrenous. Our foot or has a terrible infection. Our foot has a terrible infection. And it has spread up to our knee. You know how, when you have an infection and you see a red line on your skin? And right. it's working its way to your heart. So we, there's a red line from your foot to your knee right now. And we keep ignoring that and pretending that it's separate from us. And soon enough, it is going to reach the rest of our body and be unstoppable. And, you know, that, that I see as the analogy of we have, to, we have to help the poor. Because if we don't, then it will destroy us. Because yeah. it will eventually become us. We will become that. Absolutely. And that, that's where like spirituality and economics kind of links together with MMT. Because it's an illusion that there is a separation between you and I. There is and no the separation. Right. Yeah. And the government. There is no separation between you and I. We're really interconnected. We are one. And whatever affects you actually affects me as well, even if I don't realize it. And maybe not immediately, but soon enough. And libertarian getting rid of the government, you know, how many people who are truly destitute are among hardcore libertarians? I'm going to guess very few, if any, right? So that libertarians are essentially, I, I, uh, you know, I got mine for all y'all. That's what libertarianism to me as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. It is, yeah. It's basically like the the elite's way of staying elite, and they don't. I don't even think a lot of libertarians realize, you know, the the foolishness of it. Well, um, I mean that 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 implies that they're very narrow focused. That you don't look outside yourself. You don't see the suffering. So you assume that whatever suffering there is is their own damn fault. They're sitting on the couch, or there's so many jobs that why are they just not taking them? You know. So it, it implies a whole lot of things. And, and news makes that very easy because news is rich of by, of by and for the rich. They don't, they don't show the suffering. And actually, I actually, uh, Asad Zaman, I'm, I'm working with an economist I, I, int I interviewed a while ago. And you, I think, would enjoy this interview. He's really, really kind of interesting and spiritual kind of personality. Um, so I'm currently working with him and I'm actually doing something pretty cool. I'm actually writing quizzes based on his lectures and we're creating an online course. And Bill Mitchell has uh, has asked us to include it into MMT Ed, which is oh, really Oh, that's really cool. Which is really exciting. So so um, I'm working on um, currently the first the first the first seg lecture is done and we're working on uh, uh, three more at the moment. Actually, I'm on my fourth, but three is like getting close to like getting feedback from people and so on. Um, so the course is called a hist a, a uh, historical context for real world economics. That's what it's called. So it's not directly MMT, 
but it is, it's the real causes of the Great Depression. It's the real causes of the Great Financial Crisis. And one really interesting thing I just – news is of, by, and for the rich. It doesn't show poor people. So, I mean, you know, in a way you can't blame that libertarian for not seeing what how poor people are suffering because it's, it's very hard to discover that. You have to go out yourself and discover that. You can't rely on any, you know, mainstream whatever. So I was just, it was the anniversary of 9-11 and I saw a video of these people, like these kids asking about, you know, is, what do you think about the American dream and is the American dream possible? And which brings up the question, what is the American dream? And as far as I'm concerned, it's basically having a house and money in a car, being rich basically. But these people were answering what's, what is what is the American dream and, and how to, you know, how did, how did you achieve it? And how can, you know, whatever, how can people, can anyone achieve the American dream? And these people were saying, of course, anyone can see, achieve the American dream. All they have to do is basically want to, you know, they have to work hard. They have to want to achieve it. And, and, and I realized that this was all privileged people. They were asking all these privileged people who had these so-called American dream who are rich to answer the question of how to achieve the American dream and saying that anyone can achieve the American dream. And here's an example of this poor person that worked hard, worked, you know, 170 hours a week. And he wanted, he really wanted the American dream and he achieved the American dream. And now he's a 20 millionaire. He's a $20 million company, whatever. And I'm just thinking, I just, it just hit me that we only talk with successful people of how to become successful. And we don't talk with any poor people of why they're poor and why they're suffering. We don't. We only learn and focus on successful people, so-called successful people, and we never focus on poor people. And so, so all these people saying anyone can achieve the American dream. Okay, well, there's millions of people out there suffering, so that means that they don't want it enough. If you want, the, if you, all you need to do to achieve the American dream is work hard enough and want it enough, that implies only individual flaws that implies no societal roadblocks, no societal discrimination, no societal, right? So it implies if you aren't successful, it's your fault, a hundred percent your fault, which implies that every poor person in the entire country is poor because they want to be poor, which is how horrible is that? How disgusting is that? And it's so it's like, if you really want to learn how to stop poverty, stop talking to rich people and start talking to poor people to understand why they're poor, what they're up against, and learn about the discrimination and systemic disadvantages that they have. And that's how you learn how to solve poverty. And that would have prevented the Great Depression. And that would have prevented the Great Financial Crisis if you talk to poor people. Yeah, but the thing is, is that every time there is a great financial crisis, you know, the people people that um, are already wealthy benefit. Of course, <laughs> because they have their their they, because they have bought off politicians and therefore have bought off the laws which make what they do legal. And so it's you know it's a big cycle of government is owned bailout and you know because they own the government they because the they government. have shut the people out of the government. Yeah. Yep, yep. And so the people that that we need to be talking to are the people who whose parents didn't own their own home. 
they rented their whole lives. Mm-hmm. What is, and so, so when you don't own property and you you raised by people who've rented their 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 whole lives, a lot of economic disparity and a lot of opportunity goes out the window with that. Because there's no stability. There's no nest egg. You know, who's paying for your college? Who's helping you? Forget paying for your college. Who's making sure you're eating while you're in college? You're talking to someone who just bought their first home two months ago. So I I'm, I was renting my entire life. And suddenly now I own a home. And this is my first interview in my new home, by the way. And I feel more secure. I feel more secure. Not only do I have wealth now, I mean, you know, I have a mortgage, but we, I have wealth now and it's going to keep growing and, you know, we're, any, any improvement we do makes it worth more. I also have a community. I also have neighbors now. And you treat your neighbors like family because you really do live with them. You know, you invite people over for to dinner and give them a tour of your house. And I just had and, my neighbors over for a barbecue. <laughs> and I, it, we have been trying to invite uh, I don't like big. I, I I'm very uncomfortable with with big gatherings. So we've been inviting like one family at a time, and you know, like once a week or whatever, we'll have people over, and it's and everybody is very nice to each other, and uh, there is an element of we are in this together. We live with each other now. We we are a family in a sense. We depend on each other. I am going to need your lawnmower in the future or whatever, you know, I'm going to need your help at some point. And, you know, it is really, so it's more than just having a home creates wealth. Cause I mean, it does, it's a huge part of it, but it also creates a community. So that, that, that was kind of a surprising thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also when you're, when you're in when you invested into a place, you want to do everything that you can to improve your investment. So you're well, always, you I, know. That, I, I, I wouldn't kind of frame it that way, but but I, I think you're right. I just wouldn't kind of frame it in, in a profit kind of a, a way, but. Because you're always thinking like, okay, so, you know, is there is there like uh, a soccer program for my kids? Okay. Mm -hmm. So they need coaches. Okay, great. I'll volunteer and I'll be a coach. Mm -hmm. That's improving your investment, your community. You know, this brings us back to, to Native Americans being slaughtered and those who weren't slaughtered, their communal land was chopped up and each individual was given ownership, the concept of ownership to a patch of land by themselves, destroying their community. And now here I am buying a house and now I've become part of a community. So even though I own a plot of land, there is now a communal element to this. That's really I, I kind of surprising, that connection. So, so my, you know what? It's community for who? That's what it is. Yeah. Community for me, individualism for poor people. That's what it is. We're white people, so we get a community. And plus, we also get ownership and wealth. But poor people have to rent. They don't have a community. It's every man for himself. Wow. I don't know. There's something there. I'm, I'm not exactly sure where that goes, but that's an interesting connection. Yeah. I, so I had a friend over 
um, and uh, that that I know through Twitter. And um, he came over, and he came to to. We just bought a new home, so I sold my home in Long Island, and I moved to New Jersey. Like a year and a half at this point, right? Yeah. So so it still feels new because it was during COVID. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really. So, oh, yeah, that reminds me. Go on. So it was like right before COVID started. Like didn't know COVID was going to hit. Like left mm-hmm. a highly populated area for like the woods mm-hmm. um, at just the nick of time. Um, and, um, and, and he came to this area and he said, well, you know, like if – if more black people move into this area, then the the community itself is going to be in an uproar. And I started thinking about it and I said, you know what, you're probably right. And so we have to change that also, that perception of of who like who is accepted and in, in what numbers in in the suburbs. Because that's really, it's really between city life and suburb life. And it's very interesting to me because, you know, I, I so a lot of the people that, that moved to this area, um, they're from the city. So they're basically, they, they move to the city from where they moved from. They, they get a job, they create a community of friends, they party. Then they decide to get married and have kids. And then so they move out to the suburbs, right? Wherever that suburb is, whether it's New Jersey or it's Long Island or it's Connecticut or wherever wherever that suburb is outside of the city. And and so, so they move out here to raise their family because it's a safer space to raise their family. Mm-hmm. And so I'm looking around at this community that I'm in. And so you have people from Pakistan here. You have people from India here. You have people from uh, uh, Egypt here. You have um, people from from China and Japan here. But, but you don't have African-Americans here in large enough numbers to call it a community. Mm -hmm. And the question is why? And the question is why? And so my kids, when they first started the school here, I said, you know, how was school? And they were like, you know, oh, and you have Latin, you have people from Latin America here as well. And so, so I asked them, you know, how was school? Because I've exposed them to every kind of culture that I possibly could. Mm -hmm. So, so they said, mom, you know, it's just a bunch of white people. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, and they were very disappointed. And, and so, uh, you know, now my daughter's like, no, no, that's not true. There are, there are some people that, you know, are Hispanic and are from India and, you know, and so she, now she's kind of found her, her group. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, she's like, but there's like, there's two black kids in the whole school. Mm. And and it's upsetting to them, you know, which it's really nice that they notice these things, but it's upsetting to them because they're like, Mom, there's just not enough diversity here. Hmm. And so and so I think maybe like white people need to start understanding that actually their children are suffering from the lack of diversity because it brings less culture. And so and so when you have when you have an area with that has more culture then everybody gets to benefit from that exposure to that culture because culture brings, you know, it brings events, it brings, it brings outings, it brings togetherness. And, 
people outside of that culture be getting to be able to be exposed to that culture, whether it's through a dance, mm-hmm. you know, or, or anything, artwork or anything. And You've taught them to not be afraid of that diversity. Right. Well, I, I think I, I think being that I grew up in Queens and that's all that I knew was diversity, right? Mm-hmm. There, there, so when I went to school, you know, in high school, nobody cared how much money you had. Nobody cared what race you were. We were all friends. It didn't, it didn't, none of that mattered. And then moving, moving in, out, you know, into Long Island, really, I, all of that mattered. Mm-hmm. Everything mattered. What, what, what religion you were, what race you were, how much, what your parents drove, all of that mattered all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to like connect them back into how I grew up, even though they weren't growing up in that environment. Mm-hmm. Hopefully I succeeded. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, um, that it, it's, it's so interesting. And so, and so, you know, not only do we have to change the way Congress itself works, but we also have to change the way the banking industry works. And so, so many different things have to come to play where the American dream is actually possible. Because right now, the American dream is impossible unless your family already had some backing. So you mean you mean essentially rich? You mean essentially house, car, insurance? That's correct. That, okay, so not the great American dream, the the official American dream. The official American dream, correct? Okay. It's not possible unless you've already had the, that stability to begin with. It's and, it's not possible unless you have been chosen to have it. If you have not been chosen to have it by having a wrong color skin, then that's that means you don't have it. Essentially. Essentially, I think for a lot of people, essentially, and it, it, it's also, it's not just, I don't think it's just, um, society itself. I think it's also the mind game society plays on you because like, I look at my family, right? So my family came here from Iran when I was a baby Mm. and my dad was a chemical engineer in Iran Mm. and he owned, um, a ceramic factory. And he also worked for the Shah because he was the head of all the chemical standardization of Iran. So he had, you know, several, actually, he had several jobs because he also helped it at other people's factories. Okay. So my dad spent his whole life building this. Okay. And was educated by the Shah because the Shah at that time was whoever got the grades was able to get a free education wherever they wanted in the world. So he's educated by the Shah. And so he built this whole thing. And at the age of uh, 45, he um, decided to leave Iran because Iran became um, a Muslim country and he didn't feel stable. And he had also signed up because my dad was very much of a socialist. So, um, so my dad had built homes for all of his workers. Mm. And so he had signed on to the Socialist Party. So he was scared that they were, that, that the new regime was going to um, single him out. And so he decided to leave Iran before selling off his factory because he thought he, you know, things would settle down. He would go back and Uh. all of his money was in that factory. 
So my parents came here with three kids, a successful business, living the Iranian dream at the time, and came here with absolutely nothing. Two suitcases, three kids. Thinking How old that you? I was six months old. Oh. And so they decided that you know, they weren't going to live in poverty, that they were going to do everything they can. So they decided that they were going to start, you know, several different businesses, whatever it was, you know, they started with, my mom started being a manicurist. My dad would apply for um, jobs and factories here and they would constantly turn him down telling him he was overqualified <laughs> because they were scared that he would take over their job you oh, know geez. he had like way too many qualifications <laughs> and so he couldn't get a job and my mom was a manicurist and through through my mom you know getting $20 tips they were able to start a small business and so from that small business, they decided that they were going to work seven days a week, 14 hours a day. Okay. And so from that, and nobody should have to do that, you know, to gain the American dream. But they, they did. They had to do that because it was the only way they were going to dig themselves out of the hole that they were in. And so they did that and they were able to gain back the wealth that they left behind. And they were able to give me a stable platform hmm. where I then I could grow and evolve and, and keep moving forward. Hmm. And so and so that American dream is possible if one generation decides not to live. Ah. And it shouldn't be that way. Hmm. You should be able to live and enjoy life and have vacation days and have weekends and, you know, and like take care of your health and, and do all of the things that like make you human, <laughs> you mm. know, and not just be a workhorse so that maybe the next generation would be able to be in the half. Plus lucky, plus lucky. So you plus have to, lucky. you have to, you have to not live, but you also have to be lucky. You also have to be lucky. It's true. So are you 100% Iranian then? I am. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm, I knew there was something, I knew there was something, I don't know the term Middle Eastern or whatever. I knew there was something from that area, but I didn't, that's surprising. Okay. So my first language was Farsi. Oh, do you still speak it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, fluently. So both of them are Jewish? I, I mean, yeah. I, 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 I which is so there was left. a very large Jewish population in Iran because during the Spanish Inquisition, all of the Jews that could leave Spain, a lot of them <laughs> moved to Iran and Iraq. Hmm. So there was, and I'm sure other places, but there, there were a lot of Iranians and Iraqis um, that were Jewish. Hmm. Millions of people. Okay. And so they, so... They all, during the, the, you know, the revolution in Iran, which didn't go so well, and the Iran-Iraq war, which America and Europe and the UK were funding so that they could just kill each other off, um, which they did very well. Mm -hmm. um, during all of that, all of the Jews left hmm. and they moved to America and Europe and Canada. Not Israel? And Israel. And Israel. Interesting. Wow. Okay. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Um, 
So there, there's a very small population of uh, Jews still in Iran, um, but I'm not sure of the size. I know Esha um, was going to interview a rabbi from one of these communities in Iran. Really? I don't know if she did it yet, huh. but um, but I, 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 if she did, I would love to listen to it. I'm very curious. Huh. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, we've been going for a while. Um, so what would you, is there anything that you would like to say before, before we get off? Maybe a little pep talk. Oh, you're good at those. (laughs) So, you know, stop feeding all of the disparity. Stop looking at all the negative and, and feeding off of that and just telling yourself that nothing is going to work. We're just going downward. We're go, we're, we're, we're never going to get out of it. There's going to be extinction. Stop just looking at that. Yes, that, that is there, right? But there is a whole nother world of people that are working to improve that. And if you want to be able to dig yourself out of the hole that we are currently in, you have to start focusing on the people that are helping create the change, whatever that change is, and, and start helping them. Because if all you're going to do is, is amplify everything that's going wrong and keep discussing that, you're just going to create more of that. And I don't want to see this beautiful earth not be able to sustain us. It would be so sad if we let go of the most amazing thing that could have ever happened, the earth and our existence. Um, and what alternative is there? What, no, I don't mean earth. I mean, I mean what you were saying before of – you know, Mr. Rogers focused on the helpers, be helpful, uh, you know, let's work together and change this because there's nothing else. There is nothing else. no alternative. Yeah. Be the creator. Whatever your part is in the puzzle of creating and each and every single one of us has a part, take your part, be that piece of the puzzle and start creating. And if all of us that actually care you know, and there's so many of us that care. There's millions of us that care. If all of us that actually care took a tiny piece of that puzzle, we would be able to heal this dysfunction. And to be kind of twisted, twisted cynicism, but not, is this even if it's, you know, like in a war, even if you do go down, we might as well enjoy the ride as best as we possibly can. And go down fighting. Yeah. You know, go down fighting for yourself and each other because that's what we've been doing this whole time. Don't get distracted by the darkness. Don't let that suck you in and make you feel like there is no hope because then you're fulfilling the prophecy. There is no hope. And And it allows you to blame others so you don't have to work. You don't have to, you know, see something bad in yourself and therefore work, you know, have to have to do more than you're comfortable doing. Right. Because really, you have to look at yourself and say, okay, how am I contributing to this? Mm -hmm. What am I doing that's effectively changing this or making it worse? And so your words matter and people don't understand how much words matter. That's interesting. So we can we can tie this up with a little MMT, which is. It's, you know, the, the idea of money is neutral, that money doesn't matter. 
you know, I don't, I don't really quite understand it yet, but just very vaguely, money doesn't matter. You know, MMT shows that, no, neoclassical says that, uh, you know, inflation and all these things, the only thing that exists, the only thing that we need to focus on is the money. You know, and we have to worry about inflation. We have to worry about how you're going to pay for it and so on. Don't worry about our, those pesky politics and, you know, don't worry about all the, you know, poor people and don't worry about any of that stuff. Just focus on how you're going to pay for it. Where MMT on the, on the other side is MMT, which says, don't worry about the money. Worry about all of those other things. Worry about poor people. Worry about politics. Politics is all that matters. Psychology is all that matters. Environmental science is all that matters. The money's nothing. I'd like to get a step further. Building the resources to create the stability is what matters. And if you're building the resources to create that, then it's not about money anymore. It's about are we able to accomplish this in a way that's productive and there are no gaps? And I will take that a step further and just say just what you said, but I would say it as do what needs to be done and is possible. Amen. All right. I think that's a good place to stop. Um, uh, thank you so much again for coming on. And uh, next year we will do part three. <laughs> We've already scheduled it. I'm so happy. I um, hope. I hope part three. I hope by part three. Th- I'm putting it out into the universe. Okay. By part three, we have already built the platform where candidates are able to go directly to the researchers and learn. And we've created that structure, and that structure is growing and it's created a large caucus in Congress. Amen to that. Um, All right. Thank you so much, Ramona. It was really nice talking to you. As always, uh, it was great. And I will talk to you in other venues as we always do. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jeff. I really enjoyed this and I love talking to you. Great. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. For this show is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape a Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all the final processing in the Reaper digital audio workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online Headliner app.
Today is part two of my two-part conversation with Ramona Masachi. Last week in part one, we discussed our new interview series with MMT candidates. As I write these words, we've already scheduled seven. Today in part two, we talk about the various concepts we've learned in the past year, all centering around the idea of taking care of those at the bottom. This is something that our of, by, and for the rich laws and media make extremely difficult. Taking care of the poor is not just a virtue and the right thing to do, it's necessary for saving our species. If you think of all humans as a single person, that person has a terribly infected foot. It's now spread up to his knee, and there's a dull but obvious red line connecting the two. We pretend that foot is not part of us. We're deceived into thinking it's not part of us or connected to us. Soon enough, however, that red line will work its way to the rest of our body and will become unstoppable. We are all in this together, whether we like it or not. The longer we keep neglecting those at the bottom, the sooner me and everyone listening to this show with their comfortable homes and cars and affordable health insurance will become those at the bottom. We will start dealing with these problems and control our destiny, or we can enjoy our second-class amenities in blissful ignorance until the waterline reaches our staterooms. And yet, as Mr. Rogers says in a crisis, look for the helpers. We have no choice but to take a breath and learn the true causes of our problems and our own role in exacerbating them. Part of that is recognizing our own privilege. There is no other planet for us. There is no other government for us. There is no political savior. We are all we've got. As Ramona says, reality is what we think it can be. If something is physically possible, then we can do it. So let's envision what is possible and start doing it. Start discussing it. Because what else is there? And now, back to my conversation with Ramona Masachi. Enjoy. <laughs> 